Hello everyone, my name is Ryan Driscoll, and this is Stoic Warfighters, a podcast about the intersection of ancient philosophy and modern warfare. Today I had the pleasure of speaking to Roger Johnston Jr. Roger is a retired infantryman and operator with the 82nd Airborne and 19th Special Forces Group, respectively. He's a licensed clinical therapist with the Department of Veterans Affairs in Maui and the director of the Vet Center. Roger's been applying stoicism for the last 20 years, applying it to therapy for 10 years, and teaching a therapy group for combat vets based on stoic principles for eight years. Outside of that, I really appreciate Roger taking the time to talk to me. It was a really interesting conversation full of practical advice. Unfortunately, we had some connectivity issues, which I'm going to try and edit out, but if I don't get them all, just try and bear with it because I think the conversation is worth listening to. Thank you. Okay, well, like I said, thanks for hopping on the call, Roger. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, no worries, man. And uh, I guess I should say good morning to you and good afternoon from Nashville. Oh, yeah, we have a term for that here. It's called Aloha. You get to do both. <laughs> oh, nice. Aloha. Okay. Well, to start this out, I was hoping that you could tell me a little bit about your prior military experience and then that leading you into, you know, working in the VA and getting your degree and being a therapist. Yeah. So um, I joined the Army in 1984. Uh, I know. I'm old, but, um, yeah, um, went to infantry basic AIT, went straight to jump school, rip, all that other stuff way back in the day. I got stationed in the 82nd, um, first enlistment was rough. I think everyone's first enlistments are pretty rough, but yeah, um, that was fun. Um, I had a break in service for about five years and then went back in, um, um, what did you do when you got out? Yeah. So I just went to school and then I went back in. Um, so during my time at the 82nd, when I was getting, when I was getting my EIB, um, I did the call fire portion of the EIB thing really really well so the battalion commander scooped me up and sent me to 13 fox school so i switched from 11 bravo to 13 fox so i went back in as a as an fo and uh yeah it, it went on a wild ride i i uh i got uh, stationed with 19 special force group um as a 13f and that was fun and did some crazy shit there and 9-11 kicked off and deployments 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 and supported odas and all those kinds of things and and uh yeah so what happened was is that um, i got medevaced out in 08 um pushed into long stool till i got stable and then they pushed me on to fort lewis um i had friends up there i have a good friend of mine that's in in bat he, he's been his entire career in in bat he was in second bat at the time and uh um so during my recovery there in uh at madigan i uh, um they're really good about um um pushing um therapy and and recovery and all of that kind of other stuff and and uh so I started talking to a therapist there from a VA facility called the Vet Center. Uh, the therapist was really great, man. They got all of my VA stuff lined up um, before I uh, before I even got out. And then there was going to be a recovery period for about three years. It just so happened that the expert in in my head trauma was in Salt Lake City, so I just went back to my home unit. Um, they were like, you can either pull CQ for three years or you can, uh, you can go to school. And I was like, I'll take B <laughs> school. So, um, I was unlucky and lucky all at the same time. And as the Stoics would say, this is what fate brought me and to take advantage of it as much as I can. Right. So I got my undergrad degree. Um, you know, like any good NCO, you're, you're trying to build up college credits so you can get promoted and those types of things. And so it didn't take long for me to get my undergrad. And then I started my graduate degree at USC. Um, I went into USC specifically because they have the only military 
um, therapy program in the country. It was also the second rated school in clinical social work. So, um, yeah. And plus I couldn't believe a hoodlum like me would get into a university like that. So, uh, fight on, here we go. And, uh, I did really well at USC, but I went into the program specifically to work for the vet center because I was so impressed. The therapist that I had in Utah worked for the vet center was very, very good instrumental in my recovery. And, uh, so that's my journey into the job of the VA. I've been, I've been doing therapy for almost 10 years now, and uh, I love my job. I love the vet center. It's consistently one of the highest rated programs in the VA, and it's because we don't follow the medical model. We don't, we're away from the CBOC, we're away from the hospital. You know, we don't look like therapists, you know, I, I look like me, right? A lot of us, most of us, you know, a good majority of the people that are employed at vet centers are combat veterans themselves. We only interact with a couple of communities. We interact with um, the combat veteran community, the military sexual trauma community. We deal with um, Gold Star families, and that's basically our left and right limits. So we have a unique population that we deal with. It's a population that I'm very familiar with. So, um, but we do couples counseling, and you know, because we can be knuckleheads, right, and dealing with the. <laughs> Dealing with dealing with military people can be thing. Our whole aim is readjustment. Um, I, I have some pretty strong thoughts about that, but it's you know there, there's no question that when veterans leave the military, especially combat veterans, there's there is a inability, or I don't even know if that's the right word, but you don't mesh back into culture very well. And, and, you know, I, I can go on a long rant just about that. Well, go ahead. Yeah. I have a comment about that, but also to me, this, your whole history, your experience with the VA, and then what you're doing is really fascinating to me. Cause I mean, I've just in the last month, excuse me, uh-huh. <clears throat> you know, I've been talking to buddies and they are explaining to me that they, they're just not willing to talk to a therapist. It's like, how could this person possibly understand what I've been through? And even, you know, for a lot of guys who have been to the VA, myself included, you know, there's, there's these people that a lot oftentimes work on the medical side of the house that yes, they technically served in the military, but if you were in combat arms or, you know, deployed in that capacity, these people are not the same kind of people. And that's, there's nothing wrong about that, but it's also not somebody that you would want to relate to. So to me, it's, it's really neat to learn that there are guys like you and there are centers specifically set up for this where, you know, guys and gals where prior service people that have deployed can actually go and speak to people who understand them, understand the specific situation and not that a normal therapist couldn't offer relief. You don't have to, you know, do exactly what you've done to be able to relate to you, but you know, that's a really great resource out there. Yeah, it's it's a very unique program, and 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 that's why I like it. Is you know I feel like I have the best job in the VA. But what I try to tell veterans about there, most people have this thing about therapy that it's laying down on the couch and it's all Freudian and things like that. I just had a funny TikTok about it where it was talking about therapists. Like the first year, the therapist is all well, you know, and then the second year is you know, or the fifth year of doing therapy, you're like, well, um, yeah, well, that wasn't good. Right. And then the 10th year is like, oh yeah, you fucked up there, didn't you? And so let's unplug <laughs> the shit show. And, you know, and I was like, yeah, I'm, I was year 10 and three years in. So, you know, it's not, therapy isn't what most people think. And, and as a matter of fact, it was really easy for me to be a therapist because most modern therapy is based in stoic thought. So cognitive behavioral therapy um, started with Aaron Beck and uh, Albert Ellis. They were they both 100% admitted that they lifted their ideas from Stoicism. So most Stoics, you know, if you were practicing Stoic, it was super easy to go through, like, because you're already doing it. Yeah. And what I do is I just go back to the source. Uh, you know, why have Aaron Beck or 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 um, Albert Ellis's interpretation of it. It's, it's cool how they apply it, 
And I would say that even most modern Stoics, there's a whole lot of people that talk about Stoicism, but there's a there's not very many people that are actually doing it and applying it because mm-hmm. it's kind of a bandwagon thing right now. And but so what I do in therapy is I just go back. I just go back to the source. You know, these are people, this is 500 years of people figuring it out and applying it in everyday life. And, and that's one of the appeals of stoicism is, is that it's a very pragmatic philosophy. It's, it's meant to be practiced. It's not meant to be, I don't know. I, uh, there, there are academics out there for sure. You know, um, um, that study it very in depthly, right? Like, uh, Farnsworth and those guys and things like that. And they, but usually what I find when it comes to stoic thinking is, is that there's a whole lot of people that do a whole lot of explaining, you know, what Marcus Aurelius would say or Epictetus or Seneca, but very few people offer like how to actually do this shit yeah, or so- they're, they're practicing it themselves. But in therapy, it, it's all it, it, 80% of therapy is stoic thought. So, What's interesting to me about that comment about the difference between the academic side and the practical side, and this is something I, I personally thought a lot about in terms of these conversations and like the way direct the direction that they're geared at is for me, there are two sides to my interest in this, you know, on one side, it's interesting to me to think about the actual principles of the philosophy and think about how they could or couldn't be applied to, you know, modern Ranger special forces, infantry culture, uh, versus the other side, which just, getting nitty gritty and explaining like the, the resources that are within the philosophy that make it a practical implementable philosophy. Cause I think they're, they're both valuable, you know? Yeah. Um, you just don't want to go, I don't, I'm trying not to go so far into the weeds that it's, you know, you can't pull out anything useful from it. Um, but on the flip side, having a background in the, the theory, I think enhances your understanding. And I think, Based on my personal experience, it's useful to jump in with just the practical stuff, just like start giving tools from the philosophy. But as I've gotten more invested and the more I research the the theory behind it, it reinforces the practices and makes it make sense on a really like fundamental level, as opposed to just having a life hack out of it. Yeah. So it's interesting because the same experience happens in, in, in therapy too. There's this idea that you have to have all of this epistemological evidence first in order to take action, right? The more I understand about it, then the, the more likely I'm going to be motivated to do it. And if I understand it, then I will apply it the right way. Um, but the truth is, if you start doing it, then you start going deep in the woods on it, it will make more sense because you're coming at it from a, a perspective of, Oh, I'm doing this. Now I understand why Seneca is saying this and that and the other. Right. And then you go, Oh, now I understand. Because if you like Seneca in particular, there, there's a little bit of a cart and horse issue when it comes to change and all of these kinds of things. And, and I think that people have this model that, you do have to have a little bit of knowledge, but let me give an example of what I was talking about. We, we're, um, we're starting to learn. Uh, we have a group. It's one of the more successful groups in, uh, with the veterans here on the island where we outrig paddle and we get all these combat veterans in an outrigger canoe. We, you know, there we are, man. And, and it's a great experience. And I was like, now I totally understand those warrior cultures that, that, you know, paddle to go to battle because you must really hate someone if you're going between islands to fight. <laughs> and then, but there's a, there's a <clears throat> team building, but we're starting to learn to steer, to steer the outrigger, right? And the old, the old Kapuna, which is term for grandfather, or, you know, they, they use terms like that here in Hawaii. He, he, he just got us in the boat. And we just started steering. He was just like, you have to feel it and and do it. You can't read it in a book. You can't do those types of things, right? So as much as I respect the Donald Robertsons and the and the Farnsworths and, and those guys trying to explain it, and I think that those are all valuable, 
But I think that once you have the general principles, the sooner that you start doing it and experiencing it and the fumbling through it and the getting your wheels and legs underneath it, you, the sooner you start actually steering, the better you're going to get at it. And then his, you know, Donald's work will start making more sense to you and you'll start connecting dots that he's been connecting because he's explaining dots that have been he's been working on for years. Right. And and that's how growth happens. You're connecting little dots all the time. And then you're bridging these dots. And you're like, oh shit. You know, so I think that the philosophy is very easy to misunderstand and very and very life hacky, if that may, you know, it, it, it can be put into bullet points very easily. But but like a many things that once you start unpacking it, man. The depth of it is there's a reason why that philosophy was the dominant philosophy for 600 years. And yeah, I, I think you're right. And it, this isn't the first time that I've seen, like, heard this conversation around what's more important, theory or practice. And I think that you laid it out really well in a way I haven't heard yet. But, you know, the theory is important. But like you said, I mean, once you've just jumped in a little bit and you said like, Oh, this makes sense. This makes sense. I'm actually going to practice this. And you start seeing the fruits of that labor in your day-to-day life. Then you're a going to be more motivated. And then B you're going to, once you read the theory, you're gonna be like, Oh, that, you know, that bolsters what what I'm already seeing as true in my day-to-day life. It it will course correct and you will connect dots that you haven't seen. Right. So uh, a, a, a military version of this is, is that this is always funny to me. Like when you first get in the military and you go to the range, right. It, you're like, you can't wait to stop using that damn nail on that front sight post, right. To, to zero your weapon. But then you see every NCO there spending like an hour on that damn zero range, right. Like, not only are they they're trying to get their precision, but they're trying to get their accuracy too. And and you can be accurate without being precise, and you can be precise without being accurate, right? There's two different concepts, and you have to bring them both in together. So instead of putting three three, you know, in that small circle, you know, most NCOs are like, until I get 21 in that damn thing, I'm not leaving. And then they and then every private and you know every private. And, and specialists is wondering why every NCO shoots expert every time they go out, but they're doing that reputation over and over and they're, mm-hmm. and you, can't, you can't talk about it. You have to just do it. And then once you start getting it, then you can talk about all of those things. But I do think theory is important. And I, I, now that when I read things, you know, it makes way more sense, but I think a lot of, you know, stuff just gets too academic, you know, and well, marksmanship is actually a really apt analogy because even like theory and understanding of ballistics, all that sort of stuff, you know, you start with the fundamentals and once you lock that down, then you start working on understanding, you know, trajectories and ballistics and things like that to enhance and really hone what you're doing. Yeah. You know, I don't even want to get in the gun debate. That's why I think the gun debate in America is stupid because most people don't understand that if you're not using weapons under the conditions that you would need to use them in, it's fucking worthless. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you're, you're not, you know, but if you're not doing the, those practical things, you wouldn't know. Right. And, and so I, I think it, it's very much the same thing with the philosophy and the therapists like Albert Ellis were very good at making their patients use it and not just do it. Right. So Albert Ellis had this funny thing about, he would, he had this thing about shame and those types of things when it came to overcoming trauma and that type of stuff. And what he would do is, and he was in New York, grouchy ass old man too, which made him automatically my favorite. He, uh, <laughs> He would make people get on the railway station and yell out the stops every every train stop and just yell it really loud on the car. And would be like, what the fuck, right? And what he would get over, so this is kind of a Diogenes, and it would be very stoic to do that, actually, is to get past this idea that you don't control your reputation. Shame is, it is a tool like every other emotion, but once you understand, you're, you are powerful and you're free. And that's always, that is the ultimate goal for Stoics. I think that a lot of people don't talk about this point, 
But the ultimate goal of Stoicism is to be free, 100%. And that is, that is the eudaimonia. That is what you're aiming for. And you don't, obtain, you don't obtain eudaimonia without freedom. Freedom from the control of your emotions, freedom from your environment, freedom from shit that you don't control. That is the goal. And so the reason why I use marksmanship, you know, it was funny because one of my veterans came up with it. He called it small circle therapy because I used to say tighten your shot group. And, you know, that's what I would say. And he was like, oh, yeah. And I would I would constantly say, hey, always aim for that small circle of things that you can control. Tighten your shot group and put it right. And what you're talking about is once you start understanding, you know, uh, windage and all of these other concepts and in, in, in marksmanship, then your left and right limits get get much larger right you understand you know and your downrange targets get large and i would say that it's the same in stoicism that once like now that i've been doing it 20 years what i think about stoicism what a lot of people um constantly drag on about sometimes is is kind of funny there's there's big differences between the two so anyway yeah so you said 20 years you've been actually you know practicing this well, how, how does that overlay with your time in the military? Was that while you were in the service, you stumbled across stoicism? Like how that happen? Well, I, 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 I was very lucky that I had a platoon sergeant um, in the 82nd. It was a Vietnam vet when I first got there. And he, uh, oh, good old Sergeant Poindexter, man. He, uh, It blew me away how calm he was in difficult situations. Now, I wouldn't say that he was a practicing stoic or anything like that. But what I realized very young that combat, the calmer you become, the more vision you have, the chances of your survival increase and the chances of the mission being successful increase. So I was taking a, I was taking a course in, you know, a philosophy course and stoicism brought up. Now I had been reading about Buddhism and, you know, I've always been a seeker, you know, ever since I was little and, you know, Buddhism made sense to me. Um, I just didn't, I just didn't, the, the, flower power love child shit that goes along with it a lot of the times right that the, the kind of the hippie people that do it I, I, you know i have a beard i don't dislike those people but i just never gravitated towards that side of it because i just knew life was hard and and it, you know and it is the fundamental you know i mean that's the first words out of the buddha's mouth that life is suffering but i think everyone skips that part and wants to go to the love part right and, and stoicism would say the same thing but what i found was is that in it just resonated me when I, when i was reading it when the first time i read meditations for that class i was just blown away i, I was just like holy i was like oh my god i i can resonate with all of this and and what resonated with me again is just how pragmatic it is and here's a man that was just writing to himself that was the most powerful man in the world and just the stuff that he was writing was like, oh, man, I, I felt everything about it. And so I started doing it because I knew that there was a way you, you had to be calm. You had to there had to be something you could do, you know, to be calm in conflict and in and, and, and those types of things, because people's lives and your life depend on it and the mission depends on it, you know that objective judgment and that clarity is, is extremely important and really good operators are, if you've been around it, they're just brilliant at that brilliant at it. And, and every operator that I know that I have a shit ton of respect for, they all have that quality that, that, that they're just super calm when things get, you know, chaotic because let's face it. Right. I mean, one of the things that I try to tell veterans and combat veterans is, is that you have touched chaos if you've been in war and you know exactly how chaotic and how crazy fortune can be. I mean, I mean, you've got the full whirlwind of what she's capable of doing and very few people have touched that kind of chaos. 
But to have someone stand in the storm and 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 start seeing things way more objective, right? Because it's very easy to get tunnel vision. And I would say it's the same thing with life. A lot of life is people, the tunnel vision comes from people's stories. The ones that are rolling around in their head. And that's the tunnel vision they have. They don't have the clarity and vision that's out there. So, so once you start doing it, yeah. And so for me, I wasn't doing it because I wanted to do it, you know, for therapy or anything like that. I just seen it as I had this great sergeant. I wanted to be calmer in combat, read this book. Looks like it works. Started applying it, and away I went. And then it paid off, and it paid off in spades. In spades. And then when you know, like most veterans, when I got home, it was funny when I was getting medevaced out of Iraq. I remember the uh, the medevac sergeant on the on the bird was like, "Hey, sergeant, the war is over for you." I'm a son of a Vietnam veteran. I started laughing. I was like, "The war's just starting for me." That was the easy part. This is the hard part. Going home, right? And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. And, and so then the, the philosophy changed for me. It was about emotional regulation. And it was about not wanting my wife to divorce me two years after I got home. It was about not being that angry father that I had and being a, a halfway decent father when I'm licking my wounds from all that chaos that fortune bestowed upon me right and then it, it, it so it changed you know and that part of it yeah and i would say that there was three things or two major things that helped me get over the hump post-war you know it'll always be with me but mindfulness meditation a big one that, that is a big slice of the pie for me and I would say that's, you know, a good 25% or 20% of it. And the other 80 is stoic, you know, I would say another 70% of it stoic. And then, you know, wisdom from here and there. And I would say that's something that the stoics are really good about too. They're not opposed to to other ideas that are work. They just want you to prove it or, you know, that's what reason's all about. But yeah, so that's how I'm it, with it, you. And then that's how it went is, is that, and then you know, uh, when I started talking to therapists, I was like, oh, that's just stoicism, right? And But they're giving you a different view of it. And it's okay to have those views, right? And, and it's one of the central principles of stoicism. We can talk about it in a minute if you want, you know, how I, how I teach things. And then there is something about that when you start teaching people the philosophy and you're applying it yourself, that that insight just dramatically starts widening. No book can give it. No book can give you if you're practicing and teaching it. No book is going to make up for that, in my opinion. Books enhance it. Like I, I love Donald's work. I love Farnsworth's work. I, I love Massimo's work. I love all those philosophers' work. But they enhance what I'm already doing. I didn't take what they did and applied it. I did. It, it's actually in reverse. Mm -hmm. So, so yep. That's the what? that's the journey. What you're saying in terms of the calm under pressure stuff is you you can easily take that directly from Stoic texts in terms of focusing on what is under your control versus what isn't in your control. But this is also one of those things where I feel like if that's the only thing you're getting out of it in the military context, then you're missing the broader picture because, Absolutely. you know, that is, that's something that's, you could derive from common sense too. I mean, there's a lot of guys that have never touched a philosophy book that just un understand that when they're under pressure, they need to focus on what is the, the task at hand and not be distracted, you know, but in your Stoicon X talk, you spoke about something like an element of stoicism that you found to be important and somewhat overlooked in the military community that became more important, you know, in your therapeutic practice. And since getting out of the military, I was hoping you'd, Talk a little bit about that. Well, I would massage that statement just a little bit. Military people, while they're in the military, don't realize how important it is. But if you're any type of NCO, you, you know how important it is. But once you get out, you'll realize almost every veteran does. They, they, they all have that like, oh, my God, 
I have been excommunicated from the tribe and now I'm by myself. And once that old lady hugged me at Dallas, you know, DFW and, you know, they wave the little flags and I get my little 10% at, at Lowe's, no one gives a shit. And you go to the back of the line when it comes to jobs, you go to, you know, all this, you know, veteran first shit is all bullshit. You realize pretty quick it is, right? And you miss tribe and you miss that connection. And you miss all that stuff. But let me step back just a minute before I get to all that. Uh, uh, here's a misconception. I, I, I teach two basic fundamental ideas of, uh, of the philosophy of Stoicism to veterans and to most people. But within those two principles, the left and right limits a hell of a long way. The first one is exactly what you just said. There's a very small circle of things that you can control. And on the surface, you're basically people apply that to mean a very limited range of things, but that's not true. What, what that entails is 75% of the philosophy. So in that small circle, you have plenty of work to do right there. Understanding that you can control and influence your belief system, that you can control your expectations, that you can control your value judgments, that you can control. There is so there's so much there's so much in that very small circle of things that you can control, and it's much broader than what people on the surface when they first hear that term, which it is a very fundamental idea. But I mean, what you're but, saying uh, is a great point is, about. There's a, there's a lot to the dichotomy of control, and you're right, because, you know, I was kind of picking on the dichotomy of control in, in the military context, because people, I do typically hear about it framed in terms of specifically task-oriented, what's under your control, under pressure. The dichotomy of control is much more, much more to it than what most people understand in the beginning. I absolutely agree with you that, you know, the dichotomy of control is more than just looking at, you know, what I can handle in a high intensity situation, you know, what is my next task oriented thought process? It is deciding on what your values are and what is good and bad. And what am I going to consider a good and bad? And I mean, it it is such a simple thing, but I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of depth to it. Like you said. Yeah. and And Stokes are very clear after 500 years of what those virtues are and, and, and they encompass many, many more. So I'll give you an example. I thought when I when here's an evolution of just being within the the dike control and applying virtue. When I say courage is one of the primary virtues that you should live your life by, what does that term mean to you? When you have that kind of control over courage, what does it mean? What does it mean to most people that are in the military? Oh, you're asking me? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a good question. To me, it's moral courage, you know, doing what's right, no matter what, under any circumstance. Yeah, so here I'll connect a dot for you. This is the progress that I'm telling you about and the depth that it can go. Courage also means saying things to people that you love that you normally wouldn't say. And to have the courage that they're strong enough to take it, that you should say it so their objective view, right, which is extremely important to, to, to Stoics, objective viewing of situations. So how many men do you know keep to themselves and don't don't speak to their partner? Ooh, you might have to switch your phone, bro. Yeah, you're right. If this uh, keeps happening, then we'll do that. So you were saying that how many guys do I know that, you know, won't communicate with their spouse? Right. Which is a common thing that we hear, you know, that, that combat veterans don't speak to anyone about their experiences or those types of things because no one will understand or whatever. But men typically do not tell their wives what they want or how they feel or what's driving them crazy or any of that kind of other stuff. Right. Courage can be courage. Yes, you're right. Courage, there is a moral aspect to it. But most people, when they hear the term courage, they think, well, that's just jumping out of aircraft and 
you know, and actually getting on a plane to go to battle and, or getting in a Humvee and leaving the wire that, you know, that's courage, right? But there's so much depth to it, so much depth to it, subtly. And, and you don't see the, that, that subtlety until you've been doing it a while. And, and you realize, damn, man, in, within that just one virtue is a hell of a lot of work to do. And so what you start seeing is, is that I don't, I don't have time to even worry about things that I don't control because damn, I can't even, I can't even focus on all the shit that I'm supposed to be controlling. Right. And so it changes, right. It, it, it changes how it goes. So to, to answer your question, the way the Stoics look at it is, is that there's these concentric circles. And when you first start the philosophy, you're, you're focused on you. But then it comes, it starts spreading to your immediate family. And then it starts spreading to the people that are close to you, right? And in our case, that immediate family would be almost our platoon or our squad or, you know, fire team, right? I mean, we're super close with these people. Uh, our survival depends on that closeness. And so, but that we are social primates. That is who we are designed to be. So the military offers that in our in a culture that's hyper individualistic. I think that that there's this misnomer that you know it's like this hyper libertarian, hyper individualistic philosophy, and it's not. It's it's more from a how we interact with the world kind of a thing. And setting all that aside, one of the things that I would say that not only combat veterans but it's just a cue with combat veteran is that we are a society that is fragmented action and tribe and you can see it i mean that's why I, I i believe it's one of the reasons why we're so hyper partisan right now in our culture because someone wants to identify with some kind of tribe so i'm going to be on the blue tribe or the red hat tribe or whatever you can see it that we that we're longing for it and in the veteran community in particular we belong for tribe and our our culture is longing for tribe I, I think you heard me rant about that right yes I think yeah and, and so but it's hard I, I was joking about this on TikTok the other day because Society is pushing people into therapy thinking that it's the individuals that are broken and they want us to fix the individuals, but in reality, it's society. And, and especially in the veteran community, because we know what true tribe is. We know what connection is. And, and the Stoics knew this too. And they knew how important it was. That's why they had those concentric circles that were working out. And we can't even practice the dichotomy of control without other people. So your individual growth is dependent on, on that, right? You're, you're, you don't practice virtue in a vacuum. You practice virtue with other people. You, there's so many examples in Stoicism that talk about wrestling with another partner. And things like that. Well, yes, other people are the partner and you need them in order to grow. So, yeah, connection is super important. I think it's a very um, underplayed thing because the dichotomy of control is very easy to get people in and under, even though they don't understand the depth of it. But these are harder conversations because they're it's you know, I mean, think about it. The inherent nature of it is we don't control culture. We don't, that's something that's outside of our control, even though we need it. And that's what's wrong, right? But what can we do as individuals? What we can do as individuals and what I try to do as a therapist is create connection and culture, right? So I try to do that by paddling. I try to do that by what we call talk story. It's a beautiful way to describe it in Hawaiian culture that we get together and we share food and, and, I do it by always asking the veterans about their wives and their kids. We treat them like family. We treat them like tribe. And that, that alone is 50% of the battle in therapy. But I yeah. think that there's, this, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, 
you know, it's it's interesting within the military context in terms of tribe. And I, I think it varies depending on the unit because I've talked to people who had, you know, really like they have some sort of thread of commonality with everyone that was in that unit. A lot of times you hear it out of the Marine Corps that once Marine, always Marine. But once you leave the military, there's this lack of tribe. But at the same time, when you're in the service, oftentimes there's this hyper competitive nature between the people you're working with. Uh, you don't talk to the people in the other squad. You don't t- talk to the people in the other platoon. You don't talk to people in the other company. You know, like they might as well be on another planet, even though they're in the same battalion as you. Um, but you're, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I do think tribe is critical and, you know, in your Stoicon X talk, you were talking about how you think sometimes whenever people get, you know, hit with the PTSD label, they might just be suffering from lack of tribe. And to me, just from personal experience, I don't have any reason to have PTSD. So I don't fall into the, that complicated, uh, conversation. But I know that when I left the military, I struggled with the, all the sense of purpose that's imbued in being in the military and that sense of identity and getting out. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, yep. what am I doing? I'm just another cog in the machine, you know, making widgets to sell, to buy my own widgets. When before I was a warfighter, I was a warrior for my country, I was going to die for what I was doing. And, you know, stoicism helped me put space between my sense of identity and my profession. And that, you know, we have different roles in our society and the number one role being, you know, having, being a good person, having a good character, and then your individual nature, your social roles. But, you know, a lot of times I, I'll see these guys and, you know, they're, they're struggling or they're talking about suicidal ideation and things. And, you know, I've seen it from Delta operators that are public figures and they're not talking about how they can't sleep at night because of like a traumatic memory what it sounds like to me is just a separation anxiety. Like they just, they lost their tribe. Like you said, or it was maybe separation anxiety is a technical term. that's inaccurate, but like you said, uh, just, they, they don't have their tribe anymore. Right. And, and so you got to look at it from evolutionary perspective, right? If you're a part, if you're a part of a close tribe of 30 to 50 people, right. And your survival depends on all of those other people. It's going to give you meaning and purpose, right? And But if you're excommunicated from that tribe, you get thrown out of the tribe and you're out in the lone and dreary world alone, you're going to be depressed. You're going to be hypervigilant. You're going to be all of those things. And funny enough, they're the four classic markers of PTSD. And so. I'm not the only one that makes this argument that a lot of people that are struggling post-military is, is that they connected with their evolutionary past, right? They connected with their ancestors. There's also think about it, man. The hell's angels 100% started because of this shit. They, 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 they formed a tribe after they got out because they missed the people that they were with there's no bond like military bonds in our culture and away they went, right? You see it over and over and over again. And most of what people struggle with, PTSD is a real thing. There are people that, 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 that have that type of trauma, but we haven't called it what it really is. And what it really is, is I, I, you're right. Separation anxiety is not, is not what I would call it, but, but it's much more difficult to fix that. But you're right. Stoicism is kind of a silver bullet for some of this stuff because you hit the nail on the head. And this is something that I tell veterans all the time. Who you are as a man or a woman is the only thing fortune cannot take from you. It's the only thing that she can't do. She can take everything, your job, your house, your wife, your career, your country, whatever. There's nothing she can't touch. And she has a funny way of doing it all the time. (laughs) But what, and and, you know, Seneca goes on about this, but, but the thing is, is that who you are is the most important thing. And once you understand it, once that is clearly in, 
your circle of control. This is one of those debt things about this, uh, about the dichotomy of control. And this isn't about being a, a goody goody person or anything like that. This is about understanding clearly what you have control over. And that is one of the few damn things that you do. And, but who you are in response to situations, who you are in response to difficulty, who you are while you're making widgets so you can buy widgets. And then you start realizing, oh, I don't really have to buy widgets. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, it is the thing. My character and virtue is exercised much better with people that I'm connected to and their well-being is part of my focus. Now, yeah. I don't ultimately I don't ultimately have control of that, but we, we can create that. Yeah, I agree and with I, you. And have you read uh I can never pronounce his name right, but I think it's Panitis, like four roles that he laid out that Cicero talks about in terms of, you know, a role of living in accordance with human nature and being, you know, focusing on character, then your individual nature, uh, you know, our social roles and then our job. Well, that construct has been useful for me in looking at this where, you know, I think that while I was still grappling with this mistaken sense of identity where my identity was tied up and formerly being somebody who carried a gun for a living and fighting bad guys where I see it out of other people around me as well, where they're, they're just like, Oh, well, if I could just do this job, if I could just go be a blackwater contractor and be back in the shit, if I could be a police officer or be a firearms instructor and you know, like it isn't, we do have individual natures that give us a propensity to do certain things. But if you think that you have to do something like that to live a fulfilled life, then I think that's where you're messing up. You know, like you can do that thing well, and if it's in your nature, you know, maybe it'll be a very satisfying experience for you. But the second you say, I have to do X because that's who I am. Well, then you've just given up to fate. Like Fortuna has your ass. Yeah, so my thing about that stuff is is that um, it, it's funny because it comes up with veterans all the time. A, there's a cultural element to this. You know, we prize, you know, because I, I believe we've, ca you know, we've created a warrior caste in our society. And, you know, look at it or not, you know, well, that, well, that's as close as they're ever going to be to a celebrity or someone like that, right? So I think that there's some people that do it because of that and and there's a cultural drive to you know for that kind of meaning but i ask this question often of veterans uh name a veteran that is known for more what they've done after war for what they've done for war or during war well um i don't know i mean to me if you're going to ask me I, politicians come to mind but it's arguable no, what they're yeah even politicians are associated normally with their with their service so when the point that you struggled with that is an identity problem that you think and the, and many but not you in particular you meaning a lot of veterans think that the apex moment of their life was their was their service but a stoic would find that very weird that the apex moment of your life is how you die. The the thing is, is that the reason why I bring that up with veterans is because your your life isn't over. The journey isn't over. You're not up the mountain yet. And your yes, you. Uh, this is part of what happens after the military is is that it creates an existential rift. You know, you, you uh, of course you start going seeking other meaning things. But what people don't realize is that the meaning wasn't the service the meaning was the tribe that's where we derive it from you don't have to do that in the service now it's hard in our culture and i think that this is where people get a little off the rails with 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 stoicism because they double down on the individualism of it and because it's very easy to go down that rabbit hole but that's not what it promotes it, it just isn't no i'm and, with you you know i, I i'm sure you know, some of your libertarian listeners are going to, you know, have a come apart, but it's, it's true. It just is. And you realize it when you start aligning with our nature, 
which is the fundamental, you know, uh, prime directive. Live according to, to nature. Our nature is primal. We're social primates. Well, I think some people have a hard time disconnecting the arguments around the efficacy of political policy and the conversation about what is in our nature as social primates, where, um, you know, I was talking to somebody and they were talking about, you know, libertarianism. And it's like, okay, I mean, we can argue the merits of whether or not that is good for society as a whole, as long as the conversation is around trying to improve society as a whole and not self-interest. But I do think that whenever you are others focused, you are going to be better off. And it's easy for guys and gals that were in the service to think like, oh yeah, well, my my close-knit tribe, as long as I'm, you know, I have them, then I'm good. But I would expand that further, kind of like Heracles circles and say that, you know, once you start being more others focused, where you have your tribe, your close family you're taking care of, then you also extend your concern to passerbys, people in your community, and start to look at your countrymen as your countrymen and not your enemies because they wear the red hat or the blue hat, you know? So there's, there's so much to be, to be gained there. And, you know, what to me, like an interesting thought experiment that isn't necessarily like a down the line practical piece of advice is how or how not cosmopolitanism could be a useful tool for soldiers that are in combat arms. Like, is it, you know, because there's a lot of people that take the route of dehumanizing the enemy right. to, to make it yeah. easier to kill them. Yeah. You, you hit the nail right on the head. Like, yeah. And, and I think that's a progress of a warrior too. I, I don't have to hate the people that I'm fighting in order to fight them. As a matter of fact, I, that stuff, it had nothing to do with hate and dehumanizing and all of that kind of stuff. It, it, it just wasn't it. Right. And now I wouldn't say that, you know, that the Stokes would pr- promote that type of warfare or anything like that. But yeah, I, I, I think that there's some truth that like, I, I didn't, I didn't go to the middle East going, Oh God, you know, God, man, I hate these, you know, Muslims and things like that. I, I think that there's, you know, beautiful aspects of their culture. And, you know, to this day that I still like every day, I know we're adding a minute, you know, into the morning. Right. And I know every day, the minute, you know, the, the, you know, and that came from their culture, right? Because that's when prayer would start. You, you can, you know, they're highly attuned to the sun and, uh, you know, there's, there's everything that we can learn from other people. Right. So there's no need to de- dehumanize them. And I wonder, right. I wonder in terms of later well-being, what the effects would be, and maybe you can speak to that, but I wonder on a pragmatic level, it being more professional and not dehumanizing them and just focusing on it as a job would lead to better mental health later than to like, because as you get older, oftentimes you become more reflective and you start to, you know, reflect on your actions in the past. So let's say you go through your military career saying they're all subhuman and I'm going to kill as many as possible. Um, are you better off for dehumanizing them or in the end, are you going to have to look those demons in the eyes? I I don't look at, I don't look at combat that way. Um, I I actually have a a different view of it. This is why I think Plato's allegory, the cave is so brilliant. And and if you look at it from a deployment warrior perspective, and he was, you know, he he had been to war too. So it, it, when you look at Plato's allegory, the cave, it makes way more sense. I think that the reason why war, besides the community aspect of it and and the social primate aspect of it, it's an awakening. I think that our culture is an illusion, that you're looking at shadows at the wall, and that what military service does, especially deployments, it's an awakening to what the what fortune is capable and is going to do. And that you're starting to see colors in 3D. And as a matter of fact, I would rather be awake than looking at shadows on the wall anymore. You just cannot expect me to see shadows the same anymore. So you were saying that the allegory of the cave is particularly 
applicable to soldiering. Uh, do you mind start from there? Sorry for having to rehash yeah, this. Yeah, it, you got to remember that you know Stoicism is a derivative of you know Socratic thought, right? So Plato makes sense in the context of this. So I think you know the dehumanizing and all that. I think that there is a, a different angle to all of this that a lot of people don't consider, and that is just a byproduct of it, right? the The thing is, is that there is an awakening. You are dragged to the entrance of the cave. I think that our culture is all about illusion and looking at the shadows of the back of the cave, that it's not real. That's not real life. When you experience difficult things, whether it's a natural disaster, war, whatever, if you have a near miss with cancer, if you survived a natural disaster, if you've been to war, any of those types of things like that, right? Um, you know, the spectrum of trauma that awakes you to what life really is. So dehumanizing other people, all, you know, all of the other things that go along with combat, in my opinion, it, all evidence points to this awakening and it, it's, it's processing that awakening. And, and we ca you cannot expect people that survive those types of things to see shadows on the wall anymore, no matter how bad we want to. Yeah. So th there's a. So you were saying, you know, sorry, there, you there cut up for a second. The organizing problem is, is that I want to keep looking at shadows on the wall. I don't. Mm -hmm. You were saying that, you know, society says to keep looking at the shadows of the wall. That's why you have a crisis of meaning, is because you know there's more to this than that, for sure. And stoicism is going to say, absolutely. Who you are as a human being is vitally important, way more important than what society is saying is important, or i.e. the shadows, right? I think that's interesting, that the allegory of the cave, because it's safe to say in, in a lot of regards that's true in terms of veterans' experience when they come back from a foreign country, in terms of just their understanding of the world and human nature where you know you have a lot of people who have this uh kind of childish view of the world that it's easy to look at as someone who's you know seen the way that different cultures are not all the same not everyone values the same thing uh, you know there's not always a clean answer to situations and then you come back here and there's you know politicians obviously pontificating about well if you just do exactly what i say this easy fix is going to solve all the problems um, if we just do this one thing in a foreign country, it'll all happen real nice and neat. And uh, kind of like what you said about being told to accept the, sh the shadows on the wall, it's hard to look at that. And I mean, you can't, you can't accept it because you know it's bullshit. Oh, yeah. I could, I could go on about this for a while too, for sure. Well, we've, we've done about an hour here, and there's a lot that, I feel like we could keep ch keep chatting, and I like. I'm really enjoying the conversation, although the internet is doing its best to test our dichotomy of control. Um, I would like to just end on a note, although I think you've already said a bunch that's very helpful, um, just very practical for you know combat vets or victims of trauma, people that would be looking for resources from the VA. But being a therapist and a veteran, you know, actively working to help veterans is there a good starting point in self-help or philosophy or therapy that you would recommend to people that might be struggling with some of this uh you know so, yeah some of this lack of tribe yeah you know besides all of that the, the tribe part will come the there's there's two fundamental principles that i hammer on over and over and over again and you start you start basically like everything else and it will become more and more complex as you do it i think that that if you can do these two key things of stoicism it will get you a long way the first one is is that there is a very small circle of things that you can control there is a very large circle of things that you can't the sooner that you get into that small circle of control and actually focus on the things that you can control, 
Focus on input, not outcome. Focus on the person that you want to be. Then what? what once you start doing that, um, the emotions that will start arising will change. Um, I, Stoics are not free from emotions. I, I, actually, we listen to them because they're telling you to take action. And the thing is, is that, but the, the, the nature of the emotions will start changing. You're not free from them ever. And we can go into a long conversation about determinism and free will too, because a lot of people misunderstand that about stoicism as well. <laughs> yeah. They're determinists for sure. Yeah. And uh, which makes sense within the dichotomy of control. Right. But the, the second principle is this, it is not the event that is the problem. It is your beliefs, judgments, expectations about the event that you're reacting to. Your emotions and your whatever that you're, you're, they're being filtered through those things. Now, we have heuristics and biases and those types of things that make, you know, because there's only so much bandwidth that we have. So we can't constantly be challenging every belief, you know, in every situation because we would just get bogged down and there would be. But there are important things that we need to do, especially and, and strong emotional reactions are an indicator typically that there's a belief system that's not aligned or there's I'm, I'm projecting a judgment or, or, you know, that is unwarranted here. But most people blame the event, whether it's Trump or Biden, you know, Putin, you know, the coronavirus, whatever, you know, my wife, you know, uh, Capital, you know, you, you, the, the gambit of things is so long, right? <laughs> All of which, ironically, you don't control. But it's not the event that is what's causing your distress. It's not the event that you're reacting to. It is your beliefs about those. And once you start understanding it, you go, oh, so there's been beliefs that I've been given since childhood, right? A lot of therapy is is attachment issues from childhood, even with warriors. Most of it, most of what war does is just amplify attachment issues from, from your youth. Most of us haven't cha challenged the, I, you know, the, the ideas and beliefs and stuff that we were given as children, those types of things. Right. And, mm -hmm. and so if you understand those two principles and apply those two principles all the time, Hmm. Is there a belief here? Is there a belief that's getting in my way here? Am I projecting an expectation on my wife? Is that why I'm mad that she isn't doing the dishes or it hadn't had dinner made? <laughs> right? Like what expectation is that? Like, oh, I have this value judgment that people that wear red hats are bad and people that wear blue hats are bad or whatever. Those are judgments. Those are value judgments. And the Stokes are very much about that is one of the things that you can control, but it is never the event that is the issue. Ever, which yeah. goes to this is why you have to be a virtuous person no matter what event is happening because you don't control the event and it's not the event isn't what's causing your distress to begin with so when you understand it those two things work in tandem and and once you understand those two principles of stoicism and apply it all the time in little things like driving and how you talk to your spouse and what you do at work and all those kinds of other things. Then you become the virtuous person and you can answer the question. I am known more in my own head for what I've done after war than during war. I consider my, my job now 10 times more valuable than not that I downgrade what I did in the military. I don't really, I just, it's just, it, that was me. But this is me now, and I feel like that I'm doing even more better, you know, more better. Oh, my God. I'm doing better work. It's meaningful. Right? I'm building communities and, and those types of things. And, and so I'm, I'm because if you're practicing that virtue every day, you will be that man or a woman. It's beautiful when you understand it. 
it's beautiful. That, that's why I love. That's why the philosophy resonates with me. I think that there's gaps in the philosophy. That's why I think mindfulness meditation is is brilliant. I think yeah, I, other- I agree that you know mindfulness is really important. I agree with what you're saying, and I, I think the two things that you brought up are like a great, like you know, obviously there's a lot to it, but I mean it's a it's a great starting point. Um, and I, yeah, you, my sentiment is the same as yours in terms of I am not you know, I don't define myself by my military experience. Although, you know, obviously the podcast named Stoic Warfighters, it seems very bravado and all the rest, but I mean, that's, it's the subject matter. And I wanted to name it something that people would recognize, but you know, that's just part of who I am, but who I am is who I am in this moment. And what I'm, what I care about is what I'm doing in this moment and how I'm being right now, right here and now. And it's been a, a very empowering experience to to be able to say that you know that was part of my past but it isn't who i am yeah for sure yeah hey roger i i really appreciate you coming on and uh we'll have to do it again soon yeah for sure